EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. And here it is. It's time once again to go inside EMS. This is week three of the Kelly is not getting a dog show. (laughs) And we are going to get that update on what is going on down there in world famous Pitkin, Louisiana from our favorite co-host, Kelly Grayson KG. Do not leave us in suspense. Kelly is not getting a dog. Kelly is still looking for, for a home for this cute, adorable puppy who has learned to yip uh very uh very adorably so he he's he's not a barkless dog apparently we thought he might be because uh he he did nothing other than whine when he needed to be let out of his crate to go potty uh but he is he has uh, discovered the the joy of, of yipping at the cats and the other dogs and and uh he thinks that's great fun when he goes and plays uh but he's so still uh people who may not be aware please define a yip for us Oh, yep, 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 yep. Yeah, it's just a cute little puppy bark. Okay. And you can know it's funny because you you actually define Nancy the same way a few months back. <laughs> oh, which... no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, you ain't, uh, I ain't going there. I am not going there. Okay, man. So still, have you given the dog a name? or? Uh... No, he is, he is still puppy. Just checking. So we are enjoying this uh, week-by-week uh uh, overview of Kelly not getting a dog, and uh, I think you know for the listeners out there, we may need to start an under over of uh, how long before Kelly has a dog. So uh, for those out there, I mean Kelly, you can't be involved in this because you're, uh, you know, you're going to end up yeah. keeping this dog. But uh, I think we just have to make the determination of the under over. So yeah. <laughs> All right. So with that said, you know, last week, uh, Kelly, we did our show on emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. We, got, we got a lot of feedback on it. I think yeah. there were a lot of great folks that uh, appreciated the emotional intelligence discussion. We had some uh, folks who outlined that they were happy to know that sometimes their emotions aren't their fault. And uh, I don't want to take any responsibility for that because you still have to take responsibility for your emotions. But we did get an email, actually a couple emails, but the one that really kind of stood out comes from a uh, someone who wants to remain anonymous. And they want to talk about something I think that's really important. And you and I have discussed on this show, how do we transition to different positions? So how do we transition from a provider in the truck to a field training officer or to a supervisor or to a manager and a director? And this is really where this email kind of goes. So I'll read you just part of this email. Let's say now that the EMS director, and let's say now that you're an EMS director or CEO, whatever, your friends and coworkers have seen you move up through the ranks, and now you're their supervisor. And there's a couple questions that are asked. 
But before we get into the questions, Kelly, maybe I'll just ask you, because this is something that really is close to you, because you've gone from mm-hmm. the truck to the supervisor realm. You've gone back to the truck and so on. I, I think the first question I want to ask you before we get into the, the specifics of this email is, what were the challenges that you faced going from the truck to a position of authority, let's say? Well, at, at a small service, uh, you have you have simultaneously less challenges and, and more challenges because, you know, for for the service that I was working for, both as a field supervisor and as an education director, um, the we were so small and close knit that that it's you know we're we're like family, um, and the the guys I work with we're all hunting buddies and and all that, so it's, it, it wasn't all that. Um, hard feelings or there weren't many challenges um when you think about you know the my new role and 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 uh this position of authority uh i could still be one of the boys on the other hand um the squabbles and the arguments were just like a family um they get personal um (laughs) you know there was there was little objectivity there to a small family uh, close knit family like organization and and we fought like families too and which is not always a good thing you know we, we can't can't keep things objective uh, in many of those situations and and sometimes the the resentment and the jealousy comes out um, and I, you know I've certainly felt it when when uh, uh, somebody that I thought I was more qualified to uh, to be in their role uh, than they were and and we we go back and forth on it and and uh, um, I'd say something that I regretted. Um, so those kind of things were, uh, um, part of the challenge there. You know, it was, it was easier in some respects, harder in others. Uh, I think I had less problems transitioning to, a to a, uh, um, supervisory role. Uh, but when I did have challenges that were usually greater because people just could not keep it professional. The same would be true. Uh, and the same is true for, for supervisors, uh, in my current employer, because we, we have a, you, you still know everybody in your ops area. It's not like you, you become a, a cog in a giant wheel. Um, you, you're a cog in a giant wheel, but you're still only operating with the, uh, with a, a handful of, of, uh, cogs around you. So it's still fairly tightly knit in our operations area. So I think the, the biggest challenge is dealing with the employees, uh, that, also applied for the position and didn't get it. You know, the other people that didn't try uh, or didn't apply for that supervisory role um, aren't really invested in uh, or aren't really, uh, um, they don't care who's in the role as long as it's somebody that treats them fairly uh, and does their job. On the other hand, you run into this, why, why not me? Why wasn't I good enough? Uh, what makes him a better choice than me uh, when you're dealing with some of your, your uh, former co-workers and now subordinates who had applied for the same position didn't get it? Yeah, and I think that that really goes into a lot of the challenges that you have is, you know, a couple things that I wanted to point out is that, you know, I, I certainly had that, um, those challenges when I was working in a system and I applied for the same position a few times, and I was not selected. But I think a lot of that really came down to who I was as a provider as well. So mm-hmm. I wasn't a bad provider, but I was a very vocal employee. 
and that probably didn't give me a lot of stock value now as I was trying to step up into the uh, into a position of authority. Now, I use the term leadership and the position of authority different. Leadership, to me, defines as influence. So if you can influence somebody... You're an, you're a leader, and you don't need a position. Mm-hmm. You don't need a position to influence. So when I say a position of authority, I'm talking about supervisor, manager, director, uh, CEO, whatever you want to call them. Now, I think that one of the challenges is who you are as a provider is your reputation as you now to try to step into a into those prime positions of leader. If you're somebody who's constantly late, if you're somebody who constantly complains, if you're somebody who constantly uh, is considered to be a uh, uh, poor employee, I think that you're going to have a harder time. And when you say, why didn't they pick me? That really is an egotistical response rather than is a practical response. The reason it isn't you is because it's you. And you have to be able now (laughs) to think about what it is that you have to change to now be acceptable to take those positions. Now, I know that that sounds kind of arrogant. I know that that sounds kind of cocky. But the realization is your reputation precedes you in whatever position you're in. You know, there's an old saying that goes, don't dress for the position you have, dress for the position you want. Well, in EMS, Mm -hmm. you can't really do that. But you can have the practice of, don't practice in the position you are, but practice in the position you want. Now, we certainly have to deliver the highest quality of patient care, but we can work on our communication skills. We can work on our conflict resolution skills. We can work on those things. You have to be seen as a leader in your current position before you could step up to being a leader in the next level position. And we kind of touched on this. Maybe it was last week, Kelly, or the show uh, before that. It was very, very recent where I said, do not allow the actions of the organization to affect your reputation of who you are. Because now when people call me as a chief to say, you know, tell me about Kelly Grayson and what kind of employee he is. I'm going to be like, oh, my gosh, he's got a bad attitude. He doesn't come to work on time. He doesn't keep his truck clean. And now you've set yourself up for failure for those next positions. And I think that's one of the big challenges when you go from a worker in the same organization to a position of authority in the same organization. What do you think? Uh, yeah, you have. You, you've got to you got to be a little more circumspect, and you can't allow your opinions necessarily to to color uh, color your counsel. I find that when you run into challenges, especially going from the ranks to a supervisory position, uh, and the people that were your peers and coworkers are now your subordinates, um, that's usually not an issue for everyone who knows how to handle things maturely. You know, and but the problem is, is not everyone knows how to handle things maturely or or to practice uh, emotional intelligence. For me, it goes back to servant leadership. Uh, If you are a servant leader and and your idea of success is empowering the people below you and making them successful, uh, then everybody is going to get along. Okay, the people who were once your coworkers and are now your subordinates are going to realize that now they've got someone in a management position who has their best interests at heart, where before that may not have been the case. Okay, so you have allies, and the people that that uh, you supervise are willingly working with you to to attain whatever your goals are. Uh, on the other hand, if you 
morph into a supervisor with a bad case of white shirt syndrome. And now that I'm in charge, I'm going to throw my weight around. Um, they see you as just one other person who got spoiled by his position. Um, and, and if you're the type of person that practices responsibility upward uh, and, and make it clear that with your new position uh, also come even greater responsibilities and even greater duties. And there's no, there's less, there's more perks, but there's also a heck of a lot more work involved. Um, then, then you'll have success. Uh, and it's all about in the way you approach uh, the, the people that you're, you're now supervising. It can't be authoritarian uh, uh, unless you have to be. And on those occasions, when you have to be authoritarian and, for example, mete out uh, um, discipline uh, or, or punish people in, in whatever way it is that your, your policies dictate, uh, if they're handling it with emotional intelligence, then, then they're not going to be offended. Uh, on the other hand, if they're looking at it like a, a betrayal, um, uh, Chris just got white shirt syndrome and now he's throwing his right weight around and he's, he's wearing out his write-up pencil. Um, then you got a problem. I think that if you're practicing emotional intelligence, then those situations uh, don't happen very often. You simply uh, learn to be grownups about it. The times I've been written up uh, or disciplined here at Acadian Ambulance, uh, virtually all the time uh, I've been, or virtually every time I've been written up, it's by somebody that I've known for 20 years. Uh, and, so, and in some cases, some of the people were former students of mine. Uh, but I'm a grown-up enough to know that, hey, you're in a supervisory position. you got a job to do. I didn't do whatever our policies dictated, and these are the consequences for it. I don't hold a grudge. I was like, do what you got to do, man. You're a supervisor. I'm a line employee. Um, do what you got to do. And they actually responded well to that. And, and it's, you know, I hate to do this, but I appreciate you being uh, being objective about it. And, and here's here's what we're going to do. And the punishment was always, you know, it always fit the crime. So uh, I, I didn't really have an issue in that regard. Not everybody uh, handles it the same way. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of things that are happening in that in that response that are just make me cringe when uh, I hear them. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a. I don't like the term discipline. I don't like the time the term punishment. I don't like. We've got to get away from those things in EMS. We've got to start. Well, talk, yeah. We got to hang on. We got to start talking about coaching. We've got to start talking about development. Yeah. You know, sometimes policies aren't. You know, just like when you talk about protocols, sometimes the protocols are guidelines. Even though our policies is a is our playbook, we've got to be able to understand why those policies were challenged, and we've got to be able now to coach. We've got to stop talking about discipline. We've got to stop talking about punishment. We've got to, and what we have to do is we have to be able to develop. Certainly, if there's going to be a challenge with people, I know we're getting off topic. If there's going to be a mm -hmm. challenge with people that are going to challenge those policies, then we've got to be able to think about, yeah. I'm going to help you be successful. If I can't help you be successful, I'm going to help you be successful somewhere else. Let's go yeah. ahead and go to the specifics, Kelly, of the, you know, the questions that were being asked. I think that they're really good, and I'll read the question, I'll give an answer, okay. and I'll let you follow up. How to change something that needs to be changed as a new leader of an organization? Now, even though you've been, and this is my opinion, even though you've been in the organization, you've been in the organization as a provider. Now, as you step into mm -hmm. that position of authority, just because you think something is wrong with the organization, you don't come in with guns blazing and make the changes that you need to make. Oh, what you no, need to do is you not. still 
you still need to be able to find the catalyst as to why that's the policy that it is. One of the things that I recommend that if you're in a position that can make this happen is you go through the policies page by page and you look at how those policies are written. I will tell you, one of the things that I used to do with my leadership team was I used to give them a test. I think it was annually. I forget. Maybe I did it more often on the policies. They had to be able mm-hmm. to pass a test on what the policies were saying because they were the administrators of those policies. But before I did that, when I first went into my position, I took the policies with a group of members of the workforce, with a group of members of the supervisors, with a group of members from my leadership team, and I threw the mm-hmm. policies out on the table and I said, this is our policy manual. Mm-hmm. What do we need to keep? What do we need to change? What do we need to add? This is everyone's opportunity to have a say in what these organizational policies look like. When we're done, we close the book and everybody works off the same sheet of music. Now, when I come to you, Kelly, and I say, why why did you do what you did? Don't you know what this policy says? The answer is going to be yes, because you helped me create them and you helped me put them into play. Now, how do we change something? that needs to be changed as a new leader in an organization, you never change a process without the people who are doing the work at the table to give, you, their, why. To give you those opinions why that's yeah. happening. And that's well, how you change a practice. That's how you change a policy is you ask the questions, what is the workforce going to think about this change? Let's get the workforce to the table to discuss mm-hmm. this change. Because you may think that you have an answer to this process, but the people who are doing the work probably either like it or have a better way to change it. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I'm going to throw a couple of Nancy McGeeisms at you uh, that she I think stole from Jack Welch. Was, um, that, the, was that the yip 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 thing? No, let's forget that. <laughs> no, let's go, let's, let's go there. there. Let's come move <laughs> on. Get me in trouble and 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 incite marital discord. Uh, no, she's fond of saying that uh, it's a Peter Drucker uh, quote that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and it means that unless you can, unless you're uh, uh, a good communicator and and uh, a fairly charismatic leader, no matter what your uh, how valid or or how visionary your strategic vision is, it's not going to succeed unless you have buy-in from the people that are subject uh, who are supposed to carry out that vision. Um, and you mentioned, uh, I really like your approach of tossing the policy and procedure manual on the table and say, what's in this? What what needs to be added? What needs to be taken out? Because the people who are in charge of implementing that policy and holding their subordinates to it now have some buy-in as to what's effective and what's not and how we should approach it. I took the exact same approach with an EMT class once in which there was a, a class-long uh, active learning exercise designed to to develop their own protocols and the way I taught them their their medicine and trauma was to have them research and write protocols for every uh, every condition we could think of um, and at the end I said oh great. congratulations now you have medical protocols uh, and you know pretty darn well that they're going to have very good compliance to those protocols because they know what's in them they generated them they created them uh, so so that sort of thing works great when you move from the street role to a supervisory role uh, and you're hot to change everything and, and man, I know all the, th- the stuff that I hated when I was a grunt or, and I've gone from, from street to, to dispatch 
and suit or and and now that i'm i'm not going to dispatch the way those those yahoos used to treat me and and wake me up at all hours of the night to go post down the street from the station um you can't do that because number one when you get into that new environment you you gain broader perspective and you maybe understand why those dispatch decisions uh were made uh and it was perspective that you didn't have uh as a field provider and the same is the same is true for a a field supervisory position now you you gain a broader perspective of why those policies are the way they are and why they were written now if after that point you have decided, even with this broader perspective, that this perspective is flawed uh, and, and the policy needs revision. Well, you're in a, a better position to change it now, but you're not going to be effective by, by trying to be the new broom and sweep everything clear. Um, you, you are um, able to, to influence policy uh, better than you were as, as a field provider. But, you know, the other thing that I've uh, I'll I'll. Uh, you talked about uh, leaders being influencers. Um, you've heard my my story or my uh, my take on on management versus leadership and supervision versus leadership. Uh, a manager bludgeons his people into submission with the policy procedure manual, and a leader does what he think is what he thinks is the right thing to do and searches for justification for that action within the policy and procedure manual. Uh, and it, they can both use the exact same book. It's just a matter of approach. Uh, the leader is collaborative. Um, he's not punitive. He tries to do the right thing. Uh, and generally, a well-written policy and procedure manual allows that sort of nuance in how it's applied. Uh, you don't have to be the by-the-book leader uh, and punish someone for every every minuscule infraction uh there's the the spirit of the law and there's the letter of the law and i've, I've always found that the managers and the autocratic uh supervisors practice the letter of the law and they're they're always wearing down the the nub on their write-up pen whereas a, a true leader um usually has a lot better buy-in and has to discipline it uh or has to counsel his employees less than he would otherwise because he understands uh, the spirit of the law and applies it. Yeah. So I think that one of the things I want to touch on is you've made this you've made this reference to Peter Drucker a couple of times, mm -hmm. and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my. Or it may opinion. have been Jack Welch. Nancy's well, the expert on that. It's either yeah. Peter Drucker or Jack Welch. And but I want to talk about it because I, I want to give my opinion because I always want to do it and I always forget, so I had to write it down when you said it. You <laughs> said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I don't think strategy yeah. and culture go together. So when you have a vision, you develop a strategy. That strategy is your goals and your plans of how you reach the vision. Culture mm -hmm. is the behavior of the organization in reaching the vision. So I don't know that there's a relationship between culture and strategy. So oh, the, absolutely, the, there's a well, there's well, a relationship. Well, when you say culture eats strategy for breakfast, strategy is needed to reach the vision. The culture is the behavior of the organization in reaching the vision. So if if you but if your have, strategy if you is radically have, okay, but Go if ahead. you don't have a strong strategy, it doesn't matter what the culture is. You won't reach the vision. If you have, it doesn't matter if you have a flawless, perfect strategy. If you don't communicate it well and sell it well to the people that are supposed to carry out that strategy, it's not going to succeed. It's and and it's, it's as simple as as. Uh, begrudging 
just, you know, sullen, begrudging uh, obedience to orders rather than everyone striving together to achieve a common goal. Uh, and you can tell when people are doing something that they resent just because that's the policy versus people who are doing something that they believe in. And that's what I, I meant by culture. Eat, and I'm sure that's what, what Drucker meant by culture yeah. eat strategy for breakfast. You've got to be a either able to formulate a strategy that is, uh, especially if it's a bold new strategy that takes the company or that takes the agency uh, in a different direction. Um, you've got to either be charismatic and talented enough to really sell that well, and to get the other people to, to do. Selling has nothing to do with the culture of the organization. No, so yeah, yes, it does. Well, <laughs> yes, well, it does. Yes, it does. It has everything to do with the culture of the organization because you've got, if you're going to lead people, the people you're leading have to believe that you know what you're doing. Well, and let that's, me tell you this. If you're, if you're <laughs> having to sell your strategy to the people in your organization, your strategy is going to fail automatically. So you shouldn't be selling anything. People are going to trust you based on who you are as a leader. And if you have to sell this process of a vision, that's the vision is, but we're getting off topic. Let's, let's go ahead All and get right. Nancy on and we'll fight about this when she's here. And we'll talk about the whole. Yip, you'll, yip, lose. Yip I, you'll lose. You'll no, no, lose. That's fine. Do. That's fine. That's fine. We'll do that. All right. Our last question as we get up there in time is how to set up your organization on another path that is different from the last leader without everyone rebelling against the change. That, boy, that segues perfectly because that's exactly what I was talking about. Whatever, whatever it was not. So <laughs> here, here's the thing that I would say. First of all, okay. I think the most important document in an organization is the vision statement. Mm -hmm. If I love to ask this question when I am doing talks is how many of you uh, have an organizational vision statement? And I mm -hmm. watch all the leaders raise their hand. The next question really kind of chills them when I say, who can come up here and recite it for me? If the leader of the organization doesn't know what the vision of the organization is, why does the workforce need to know the vision of the organization? We are wired to think in pictures. If I say picture your car or think about a car, you're going to actually picture a car. You're not going to see the letter C-A-R. So in the absence of a vision, we don't know where we're going. Okay. Now, when you step into a role as a new leader, you do not have the magical wand to say, I'm taking this organization in a new direction. Now, what I would like to say is we hold the rudder of the boat and the employees are the wind in the sail that make that go. I would get the workforce to the table once again, the leaders to the table and say, what is the vision of the organization? I'll give you an example. When I was at Christian Hospital, I said, what's the vision here? And somebody said, we relocate the sick and injured. I said, well, that's a good vision, but let's go ahead and change it. After work, we said, we're going to be uh, deliver the highest quality patient care, be leaders in our community, role models for our career field, bunch of flowery words around it. Everything that we did was stepping towards the vision. People would say, you know, Chief, we need to bring this program here. Well, how does that make us uh, deliver the highest quality of patient care? We need to be able to change our, our, um, uh, you know, our logos on our ambulance. How does that make us leaders in our community? So when you start to think about change, when you start to think about leading an organization, it's not your vision. What it is is your goal is to hold the rudder while the people now are the wind in the sail. And you, mm -hmm. if, you, if you start to do things or make changes in a vacuum, you are going to fail. The the you know the leader finds the workforce to make the vision work 
the workforce buys into the leader before they buy into the vision. Mm-hmm. I, using your analogy that the leader uh, manages the rudder and the employees are the wind in the sails, when you're talking about changing the course of an organization, you can't, if you're in a sailboat, you can't reverse course 180 degrees. And you're really, it's, it's kind of hard to reverse course 90 degrees. If you're going to do that, then uh, the wind has to shift radically. <laughs> and you're going to have to get your employees to blow from the opposite direction and feel your sails going the other way. That's not easily done. And if they're not willing to do that 180-degree uh, reversal, then you're going to be dead in the water and you're not going to move anywhere. And the culture ate the strategy for breakfast. On the other hand, if you have a bold vision, but you're willing to uh, adopt it incrementally and make minor course corrections, still steering in the direction you want to go, you do it small little course corrections at a time. Uh, You're tacking into the wind or you're making minor course corrections As you go in sailing, if you're if you're steering the rudder, you're going to have to go the way the wind goes or you're going to have to tack into the wind a little bit. But you can't just say, well, I want to go south if the wind is blowing north. (laughs) You can't do that. You're not going to you're not going to go anywhere that way. On the other hand, you can make a wide circle around and eventually get in the direction you want to go in a little bit at a time. And I think that's the key to changing that culture. Um, using, using your analogy right there, you can't do it all at once. Um, you've got to do it a little bit at a time, uh, and keep steering and keep pushing toward that new direction. And eventually you get there and everybody's still on board. Uh, but you can't do it all at once because people are going to rebel against that. Unless, unless unless the employees or unless the employees were as unhappy with the previous, the direction of the previous administrator, and think themselves that a 180 degree course correction is necessary. In which case, you got willing people. They were like, uh, the last guy was doing it all wrong. All of us were unhappy and on the verge of quitting. And we were, we were already rebelling against the previous leader. And that's why you're here. All right. Then you got a willing, you got a willing workforce behind you and you got a culture, uh, that is ripe for change. And you're just the catalyst, uh, and the person who's supposed to steer that change. Um, but if they, but that's buy-in, they, they want that. If they don't want that, you're going to have to nudge a little so, bit at a time, but eventually you change it. But Ke- hey, but wait, wait. Before <laughs> Kelly gets to his but hey, uh, I just want to give you a quote: <laughs> "Rules without relationships result in rebellion." Go. That's it. Rules without relationships result in rebellion. I don't know who said that quote, but it's a valid quote. But it still it still um, adheres to that whole culture eat strategy for breakfast oh. you said if you have no oh. if you have if you have if you have to sell a strategy it's gonna fail no you sell that strategy by strengthening and building those relationships that's what sales is that's what <laughs> salesmanship chris is a having a good product b knowing the motivations and the desires of the person you're trying to sell it to and C, trying to build a relationship uh, with your prospective buyer um, to sell them the quality product that you got. You don't build a, uh, and it you don't build a strategy. A, you don't build right. a strategy it, without a vision. Yeah. So and if you, you decide and, to build a strategy without a vision, it will fail. I will, I will agree with that. 
But hey, we'll agree with that. That's but what hey, we think. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, that's what we think. I don't necessarily agree with what Chris thinks, but I think we're talking about the same thing with just two slightly different perspectives. We'd like to hear what you think. Um, does culture eat strategy for breakfast? How do you go from a line employee to a supervisory position and still keep all your friends and still do the work that your agency expects you to do? We'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. For myself and co-host Chris Sebolero, who I love to argue with every week, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.